welcome to the Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 12, Working with Transference, Psychoanalytic Practice. Okay, I'm going to make a start. It's a very big lecture today, and it's quite uh, pivotal. It's sort of a the heart of therapeutic psychoanalysis, as repression is the heart of theoretical psychoanalysis, um, transference and how one handles it and how one overcomes its tainting influence, its capacity to bring the past into the present is quite a crucial thing. Uh, we need to learn, in a way, how to be present. And I think that's a, quite an odd thing to say because it's like, of course we're present. You know, we're here, we've got our bums on the seats, we're in the lectures, but, you know, are we actually present? Are we actually able to attend to what's happening to us in the here and now separately from the things that we bring to that situation? You know, because if I see someone, you know, um, provoking me, say, are they really provoking me by what they say? Or is it something that I bring to my interpretation of what they say? that makes it a hostile thing to say. In other words, is it part of me or is it part of reality? And how much of what I bring to a situation actually shapes the nature of the situation? And am I sufficiently aware to know about what I bring to a situation? Oh, yeah, I tend to be a bit paranoid about that or I'm a bit thin-skinned around those issues or, yeah, you know, I, I, I sort of, if someone doesn't return my call, I think they don't like me. You know, I go to that place very quickly. This is a way of sort of knowing oneself and knowing that, well, it may not actually be what the person intends, but nonetheless, it's what I'm picking up. It's what I'm receiving as their message. And there's a lot of slippage around those sorts of things. And I suppose that's exactly the art of understanding transference or understanding the opera, operation of the past in the present moment in all sorts of ways. And that's what I want to focus on today. Um, and if I could just say central theme of today's lecture, last week when I was talking about mourning and melancholia, I was talking about how we take on aspects of another person into ourselves and those aspects of the other person make up part of our ego. That's the shadow of the object. So it might be their way of doing things or their values or what they think matters. And I take those on and they become part of my ego. Now, if I want to change myself, and that's what most people going to psychoanalysis want to do, they want to change themselves. What's required is that I re-externalize those things I've internalized about others. I re-externalize them and I recognize, wow, these things that I think are part of me are a legacy of a history of exchanges with others. In other words, I've modified my ego on the basis of identifying with others. Here's the things I've thought were identifications. Do they really serve me well? And funnily enough, the way you do that is like, so when I'm identifying with someone, I take things on board as part of my own ego. And I just think that's the way the world is. You know, I'm not worthy of love. I'm basically bad. Okay. And that's just a fact sometimes for some kids. But then if I go into a, a therapeutic session and it becomes apparent that I don't expect the therapist to be interested in me and the therapist says something like, I just noticed that you don't really expect me to pay attention to you. You get surprised when I remember something you said 
last week. And the person has to go, oh, wow. In other words, they have to come to realize they've made assumptions about themselves that they didn't know they had made. And they have to track the source of those assumptions back to early identifications. Mum gets bored when I talk about X or dad ceases to listen when I talk about Y. Do you know? And so in a sense, it's a kind of weird thing. The things you took on inside, you then project back onto the outside so you can see them for what they are, a piece of history that isn't necessarily who you have to be, that you've got some other options as to what sorts of ways of viewing yourself and your lovability or otherwise. So that's, a, that's kind of a strange reciprocal process between mourning and the modification of the ego from losing people to then putting those templates back out there unconsciously in a therapeutic situation and being allowed to reconfigure them. And that's what transference permits you to do, It's to open the past up, to change again, that which has been sort of frozen in time, sort of thaws and becomes fluid and mobile and changeable again. So it's a very sort of optimistic notion. Okay, transference and being present, and then I'm just being a joker really, and being present to transference, like knowing when transference is operative. And it's easy to say it, but it's very hard to do it um, because usually you don't know your own transference. It's just out there for you. And it's a, it's a real art to recognizing when it's operative. Okay, love and transference. What does love feel like? Well, it's a chemistry. It's a familiarity. It's a sense of being destined to be with this person, that you've found the one that you're waiting for, a la lamb, if you know that band. You feel no longer alone, a re-encounter with an old soulmate. What does transference feel like? Well, it's a chemistry. It's an uncanny familiarity. It's a sense of being destined to be with that person, that you've found the one you're waiting for, that you're no longer alone, a re-encounter with an old soulmate. Now, I am just joking. <laughs> Because obviously love and transference have got to be different, haven't they? But are they different phenomenologically? Are they different in terms of what it feels like? I would say probably not. They feel roughly the same, which is why the analyzant gets to assume that they're really in love with the therapist, and the therapist must never forget that this is transference, <laughs> okay, even if it feels like love to them. They have to recognize that there are aspects of the context, the inequalities of power, the intimacy of the situation, the fact that one person is paying the other for this, etc. That means it's not all that likely really to be love. It's more likely to be a transferential playing out of something that looks very much like love. And there are very real similarities. And what's interesting about psychoanalysis is it's a defining feature of psychoanalysis that it works with the transference. So if you're a therapist and you work with transference, you are working in a psychoanalytic way. That's like a defining feature of the way that the therapies operate. Okay, and I want to sort of just raise the whole issue of love, transference, and why I think neutrality does matter, even though it's quite an unfashionable notion. I think a certain form of neutrality accords a sort of spaciousness to the therapeutic environment and a safety to the therapeutic environment for the person coming in for therapy. Um, because you see, as therapist or analyst, you're offering yourself as a projection board to some extent rather than becoming known. So if someone says, have you got kids? You're supposed to say, what do you imagine? And what difference would it make if I have? You know, and that's like, yeah, I asked a question. You just asked me two back, but you didn't give me an answer. But in a sense, um, if you give an answer, you close off 
why that matters to the person. Why does it matter whether or not the therapist's got kids or not, is married or not, is gay or not, has affairs or not, you know. So you don't, you're not really quite supposed to become known as therapist. Um, and so it's not like any other relationship in the world. It's not mother, it's not sister, it's not friend, it's not lover. And I think it's a very unique relationship for very good reasons. And so they do answer questions with questions, but that accords a certain spaciousness to the relationship because it keeps the focus on the questioner. Why do you ask? What hinges on that for you? Okay. So the general aim of psychoanalysis is to find a link between present symptoms and past experiences. Because all that a symptom is, really, is a habit that's lost the context that makes sense of it. It just seems symptomatic, but it once would have made sense if you can find the right context for it. And that's what transference helps us to do. It sort of is like a silken thread that pulls with it the entire experience of your childhood environment into the room in the present moment. So, what is transference? There's a really beautiful book called Kant's Dove, and it's a history of the uh, transference within psychoanalysis from all sorts of perspectives. The reason it's called Kant's Dove is because Kant acknowledged that the wind resistance on a dove's feathers when it's flying slows the dove down you know it's flying against the wind but he says but for that wind resistance the dove could not fly at all okay well it's the same thing with transference transference inevitably emerges as a resistance in therapy it's it's usually a, an attempt to bring therapy to a halt or to distract the therapist in some way. Because the, the analyzand is thinking, uh-oh, they're getting really close to big stuff. Unconsciously, I don't want them to get close to this big stuff. So I'm going to really hate them or really love them or try to get them to act on my behalf in the world in some way. And I've done it. I've nicely derailed therapy. I've got the therapist slightly confused and, you know, off form. Far out. My unconscious material is safe. So it's a resistance. So Freud first noticed it when he would ask people to free associate on an element of a dream or something that they raised in that unstructured conversation that is psychoanalysis, and there'd be nothing. There'd be silence. And he quite quickly picked that this happened in sort of two ways. One was when there was a symbolic dream element, bracket that for the moment, but the other one is when they were feeling that they had the hots for the analyst or they were really hating the analyst. So strong emotions, usually erotic. And it could either be love, positive transference, or hate, negative transference. But it was something that they felt unable to confront the analyst with in words. And so there would be silence. There wouldn't be the usual compliance with therapeutic work. And usually the sense of it is that there's something excessive to the present moment. Yeah. So if somebody asks me a simple question and I fly off the handle, I would have a really good look at myself because it's like that was excessive to the present moment. They're asking a really simple question. Either I'm really stressed or that was needling me in some way that makes me need to address something about my own history. And it's that quality of something excessive. And it's not necessarily negative. 
It can just be that they're really attentive to everything that you're saying, you know, and it's kind of like this hyper alertness. And it's kind of like, okay, there's something unusual going on here. What's happening? So Freud discovered transference when he noted uh, that the patient, as he called it, had a, a strong change in attitude towards the analyst, and he thought this usually involved strong emotions and erotic impulses. It's kind of like a dream transference because it's actually, it's not something that happens in language. It's actually something that is actualized in the moment. Like you feel things change when transference is in the room. You feel different. Um, and it can be wishes or it can be fears. And it doesn't occur in sleep. That's what's different about it from a dream. But it occurs in a relationship. But it is just as surely a marker of the unconscious as a dream is. And if you know how to read transference, you can read transference in something of the same ways as, as dreams. Except you're taking part in the dream. So it's a recreation in the specific moment. So when people say analysis is not about insight, it's not an intellectual endeavor. It's not just about knowledge and it's not just cognitive. It's because it's a recreation. You get to observe this person's conditions of loving. You get to observe what it was like to be them as a child in some ways. You get to feel what it was like to be perceived as an authority by them when they were younger because they treat you in that way and you feel different from your usual state. So what it is, it's like a template of love. It's like, I'm loved if I'm a really helpful person. I'm loved if I put my own needs aside and focus on the other. Um, I'm loved if I don't aspire to be a, a sculptor, but you know, content with myself with being an accountant. And you sort of work out what the conditions of loving are or what they feel that they have to do to be worthy of love. And sometimes it's awkward, like they might be bringing you lots and lots of gifts. And as an analyst or as an analytic psychotherapist, you're not supposed to accept gifts. So it's an odd thing to say thank you, but no, and then analyze why they're bringing you gifts. It seems very unkind. It's a very unusual kind of relationship. They bring you a cup of coffee, and you've got to sit there and watch it go cold in the therapeutic room, you feel strange. You feel odd. It's not very human. Not to just go, thanks very much. I've just felt like a latte. It's like, oh, no, it's okay, thanks. Have my coffee for the day. Do you know? It's odd. Um, transference comes from the past. It's usually the recreation of stuff that's quite infantile. Um, but the interesting thing is that the analyzan doesn't sense it as being from the past. It feels real. It feels like what's happening right now to them. And what gets recreated? Well, think back to Morning and Melancholia, the lecture last week. Um, significant relationships get recreated, ways of relating, habits, actions, gestures, modus vivendi, ways of living. You know, you might look away if someone flatters you because you can't cope. Or um, you might imitate a person's gestures in a mocking way because they've said something that's very tender about you or very loving about you and you can't cope. Okay, so there might be all sorts of little things that you just do. You might move your chair back slightly because it just got a bit, ooh, a bit close, a bit intimate. And what gets recreated is often to do with power, triangles, someone's unavailability or rejection, someone setting limits on you or boundaries. And often what gets recreated is ambivalence in love. 
They're often, if you're being very helping and caring and loving of your client or your analyzant, they may want you to be a bit hating of them as well, because that makes them feel more comfortable. That's more what they're used to. So how is transference recreated? Well, often it's via actions, because often what's being recreated is procedural memory. It's never been in language. And so they might communicate to you that they're annoyed that you were away on holiday by cancelling a session or by being late in a way that makes you feel disparaged and not worth so much to them. Or they might give you gifts, or they might try to pay more than the session is worth, or they might forget to pay you as they're walking out the door. And you've got to sort of go, okay, what's happening here today? And is it just an accident? Well, you know, psychoanalysis doesn't really allow much for accidents. There's not much that's seen as random. You know, Freud, Freud does famously say sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, but, you know, it's very rare <laughs> that things are seen as just cigars. They're usually seen as penal symbols, you know. So nonverbal behaviours are exquisitely attended to. If someone is being flirtatious with you, you notice it. If you're being flirtatious with your client, you certainly want to notice that. Um if they reject your interpretation by suddenly crossing their arms and looking away or looking down or kind of like that, okay, that's in the room. And you have to sort of stay attentive to that. Grimacing, sneering, tones of voice, abrupt shifts in conversation. Uh, they might just have set up a really beautiful picture of what it was like for them. And they go, oh, you know, I don't know why I said that's a load of rubbish, really. Okay, <laughs> two currents of feeling here, <laughs> one which is hopeful and young and fresh, and then boom, then comes the critics, smashing it down in front of your eyes, and you haven't said anything yet, you're just listening. Okay, So transference has its plus and minuses. It's, it, it is usually an attempt to derail therapy. If someone's buying you a cup of coffee, they're trying to turn you into a friend with whom they have coffee. You're not a friend. You're the therapist. If they want to turn it into just another relationship where they love you or they hate you, that's cool. But the focus stays on them and you wear the hate and wear the love. James Gross talks about one little guy who spat in his face for a year and a half. The therapist got spat at for a year and a half and just had to sort of handle that and not react, not reject, not condemn. So you need, you know, you need to get paid for this basically is, is the bottom line. But... What's so cool about transference is it is the medium of therapeutic change, pure and simple. It is how therapeutic change occurs. It's the medium in which it happens. And there's all sorts of tricks to the trade, but transference is what makes change occur. If you can learn to handle it. If you don't learn to handle it, the person will sometimes abruptly leave therapy, and that can be really sad because someone leaves that shouldn't have left but you missed something crucial and you can really beat yourself up about things like that because you know sometimes at the end of a session you know by the tone of voice that you're not going to see them next week and you go oh no what did I miss I missed something and it's too late in some way okay so how should we re how should we view it well it's a sign of resistance it's something that arises when something deeply repressed is about to be uncovered and it's a way of trying to distract you or stop therapy it's usually to do with sex and that's not just because freud sees sex everywhere although he does 
<laughs> like that's true, he does. But it is usually because there's some libidinal impulses in there, not necessarily genital sexuality, can sometimes be pregenital or perverse, um, and they're usually the libidinal impulses that have remained least developed in that person. Because, you know, some of your libidinal impulses really get taken along in life and become quite mature, but others get sort of held up. If you've got a sort of fixation about things, you had too much or too little pleasure at a given psychosexual stage. Freud says it's like you leave some soldiers behind at an outpost and the diminished army moves on. So when the going gets tough later on, you regress back to that outpost where you left your soldiers, basically. So that's what fixation and regression is about. If you had too much or too little pleasure at the oral stage, for instance, and then you get rejected romantically later in life, you might go for comfort food because, you know, the oral phase did it for you. That was the thing that worked for you. Or you might masturbate because the phallic phase was what did it for you, etc. Okay, so so that's that's the sort of thing. But um, with sexuality, because it's like a braided river, some of it goes forward into the full genital river, but other bits get left behind and they stay very young and quite linked to fantasy. And so they can be quite out of touch with reality. And those are the things that are going to be most likely to be repeated in the therapeutic situation. So sometimes you can't believe it. It's like, I just, you know, was five minutes late. And this here, here's your client saying like, well, you're useless, aren't you? Do you know? It's like, okay, <laughs> five minutes late, something important is happening here. Right? So you pay attention. So sometimes it's that they want to be special, like they might have seen that someone else was in the waiting room and feel rivalrous to your other clients. It might be that they want to exert power. They've revealed something very vulnerable about you, uh, about about themselves, maybe found good Freudian slip there. They've revealed something very vulnerable about themselves, and then they go, oh, look, I don't think therapy's worth anything. I don't know why I keep coming here. Do you know, um, I might sack you. Okay, so this is, there's that exertion of the, of the words that are very powerful words, as though they're your boss and they're going to sack you. And that's because they've been feeling vulnerable or exposed in some ways. Now, there's a, in the jargon of psychoanalysis, there's a very important concept that you really, really need to learn. And you, even if you're not working psychoanalytically, even if you're just working in docs or working with people in, in an extended way, you've got to have this notion in place because it will, it will occur, it will arise at some moment in your transactions, which is called attacking the frame. What the frame is, it's a set of procedures, <clears throat> excuse me, a set of procedures and expectations about how things go, how things are carried out. Okay, so for instance, if you um, wrote to me and said, look, Doris, I'm going to be really busy in that week leading up to the essay, I was just wondering, could you just write it for me if that's okay? Do you know, um, it wouldn't take you long. You, like, you know the stuff. Look, just aim, look, I don't care. You could just write one that's a, a, you know, B plus or a, you know, distinction. That would be fine, right? What you're trying to do is invert the power relations there where it's like, I could write an essay for you. I probably wouldn't, you know, for obvious reasons, but it's, it's an, it's a sort of provocative, slightly witty reversal of power. And that I've given you a very obvious example of that, but sometimes it's far more subtle than that. Like if you're running a group psychotherapy, someone comes in very late, for instance, and takes over the group. 
and suddenly you're not in charge of that group anymore because they're going, well, I've had a really shocking day, all right? Whoa, they're attacking the frame. They're trying to undo your way of running the group. And it's a challenge to your leadership. It's a challenge to your capacity to think on your feet, respond to them in a non-rejecting way, but keep them in their place as person seeking therapy, not as person running the group, rivaling you as leader of the group. You know, you've really got to think fast. And the first thing to do is to see it for what it is. It's a power challenge. It's attacking the frame. If you succumb to that, if you let that persist, you lose authority, you lose the group, and you have chaos on your hands. It looks like a small thing, but it can unravel process very, very quickly. What you notice, too, is some people will say, "Uh, look, you know, I really don't like this room. I was wondering if we could go for a drive when we're having therapy, or could we meet in a cafe instead? Nope stays in the therapeutic room. Uh, you know, I was wondering if I could just have an extra half hour today. Or I know I was 10 minutes late, but can't we just have the 10 minutes added on at the end of the time? If they're 10 minutes late, they've spent that 10 minutes by not being here on time. You look like a meanie, but you have to hold the frame because that's actually a saving feature for them as well as for you. Because if you step outside of that and start to make exceptions, they start to feel like they're the exception, which is a narcissistic position. I'm the exception. Rules apply to other people. They don't apply to me. You're sort of gratifying narcissistic components of the person. So it's an odd thing, isn't it? Um, Also, if you've seen um, In Treatment with Gabrielle Byrne, there's a, a client in that who Googles the analyst who works out where his family members are and where they work and tells the analyst that. So that's an intrusion which can be experienced as uh, stalking by some people. And in perverse personalities, this attacking of the frame can be an attempt to dazzle and entrance the therapist, to make the therapist forget their responsibilities, to make the therapist forget their position. Like if you think this is love, you've forgotten your position. You're being paid for this. You're the one with more power in this situation. Um, this this person may need you to feel loved, uh, sorry, to feel loved for them, to feel seduced by them. But you should be looking at that and thinking about that, not falling for that. In other words, you make, you want to make what they're doing to you an object of thought rather than an object of action on your part. If you stop interpreting and start doing, then you're losing things a little bit, unless you're very aware of what you're doing. Sometimes you can do something as an intervention, but you've got to be consciously aware that you're doing it as an intervention, not rationalizing after the fact, oh, I did that because. You've got to really know why you're doing it at the time that you're doing it. So if transference is seen as love by the therapist, that's quite dangerous therapeutically. It's an ethical challenge to you because you've lost your neutrality with the client. And if the, if the client see, succeeds in having you act rather than interpret, it's a triumph of their narcissism. And that's not in their interests. It's not helpful to them to regress to a narcissistic stage. Because transference can promote regression. Like people might go from genital to pregenital impulses. So for instance, Googling the analyst is a kind of stalking, a kind of wireism. Yeah. Um, if they send the analyst inappropriate pictures, it's a kind of exhibitionism, that kind of thing. You have to see it for what it is. 
and interpret it and comment on it, but not judge it. Definitely not judge it. It's all data, as it were. And I don't say that in a cold-hearted sense, but to keep the right frame of mind in relating to it. So even if someone's stalking you and you're feeling scared, the stalking and your fear are data, you know, and you pay attention to them in that mode. So the person may go from genital to pregenital. They may go from object choice to identification to fusion. Because you think about it, fusion was your first state. That's the primary narcissistic um, part of everything that feels good. Then you move to identification. I'm taking on board attributes of the other that shore up my sense of my ego. And then I go to object choice. Gosh, this person is a wholly separate other, and I'm a wholly separate other from them, and I love them. Okay? So, you know, developmentally you go from fusion to identification to object love. But in the transference you might go from object love back to identification, back to fusion. And that can be quite challenging. It can be an almost like a psychotic state if it goes too far, too fast, regressively. So some people don't use the couch because it can promote too speedy a regression for people. They think it's much better if people sitting up face-to-face. It, it keeps them grounded in reality a little bit more. And that's what you're dealing with, the boundaries of relationship, the boundaries of self, the boundaries between reality and fantasy, the boundaries between realistic fears and paranoid, fanciful fears. So what's repeated in transference? Well, what what we repeat in transference is what we're most identified with and least aware of about ourselves. And so it's a huge ask to say, oh, can you just be mindful of that? It's like, it's almost impossible. We don't even realize that we're doing it. We don't realize it's part of us. But the way that we can come to realize it's part of us is if we project it onto the analyst and we script the analyst into acting a part that, in fact, was played by someone in our past. And if the analyst goes, gosh, I'm feeling a lot of pressure from you to reject you. I feel like you want me to abandon you or to refer you to a more powerful therapist to admit that I can't handle you or that I'm defeated by you. Or Do you know what I mean? But the, if the therapist can say that, the person can go, wow, uh, that's something I do. Gosh, that that really is one of my patterns in life. And they might be able to sort of see that they're repeating something in the present moment. So instead of it being unconscious enactment or unconscious repetition, they can become consciously aware of it and know it as something belonging to their past. So where it was, there shall ego be. Where unconscious enactment was, there shall thought, thinking, weighing, rational, objective thought be. So if the the client's trying to seduce the analyst or to get the analyst to abandon him or her, the analyst has to say, I noticed that you're wearing really low-cut dresses or you're looking really hunky these days and you're sort of, you know, bristling your biceps at me and I'm wondering, you know, if there's some sort of longing on your part that I find you very attractive. Can you imagine saying that to a friend? No, it's mad. But in therapy... It's normal, okay? It's exactly what you do. You put into words the things that are in the room that are in actions rather than words. And in that way, you show a sort of fearlessness in being able to face things that some people go, I can't talk about that, that's just too strange. 
And so the, the person doesn't recognize this as coming from the past, but the therapist has to recognize that this is a piece of the past that's being enacted in the present. And so rather than falling in love, they have to resist the appeal of the client and realize that this is actually due to something about them, that the way that they've got love in the past is by seducing. Um, or the way they've got love in the past is by flattering the other, even if they don't quite mean it. And the therapist has to see that for what it is. So there's two features of transference, and I'm not sure how separate they really are. One is recreating a figure or a person, and the other is recreating ways of being. Now, if you think about it, last week when I was talking about mourning, I was talking about do you recreate the object within yourself, which is the figure, or do you take on board piecemeal attributes of that other person, which is like creating a way, a recreating a way of being? And so transference has got both of those elements in an interesting way. It can be recreating a figure from the past via attempting to have the relationship patterns unfold with the same themes, the same emotions, the same conflicts and tensions that the past relationship has had. They won't realize that it's a repetition. But if you're working therapeutically with someone, sometimes it's striking the degree to which they end up again and again in the same situation with you, talking to you, or they're again and again in the same situation with someone in their life. So transference is a form of repetition regarding a person or regarding a template of contingencies, a set of conditions for love. Now, that recreation of a person is called an imago in psychoanalysis. Uh, Jung really loved the term imagos and he really ran with it. Freud uses it a bit, but not as much as Jung. Um, I like it as a notion. I think it's very useful. Because, um, you know, sometimes you've got imagos haunting your dreams. You've got, you know, the pursuer or the person or the fugitive in your dreams. And I think those sorts of imagos are interesting to analyze. So what is an imago? It's affect laden. It's full of emotion. It's a kind of prototypical figure, an unconscious prototypical figure that tends to shape how we view others. So if I'm a psychopathically inclined person, I think everybody's a swindler because I'm a swindler. Okay. And so I tend to sort of look at my therapist and, ah, oh, they're in it for the money. They love the power. Look at them. They're just so greedy, right? You know, and if you're a, an analyst, Nancy McWilliams says, and you say, no, I really love helping people. You're going to lose that person. You have to go, yep, I love the money. I'm greedy. I love the power. And then you move from there. But you don't deny that that is part and parcel of your relationship. You have got power and you do get money. So don't feel ashamed of that. You acknowledge that, but you acknowledge that that's not the full story about why you're there. So an imago is not just based on real relationships. It's usually got that extra fantasy element. You know, if you feel like totally the black sheep of your family or totally the golden child, chances are that wasn't the full story. That's got elements of fantasy linked to it as well. And it's usually um, the residue of one of the participants of a relationship's early environment that's getting recreated in certain ways. And so... So clients script their analyst into being like another person from their past. And if you're the therapist, you feel that. You feel quite distorted. They're kind of assuming you've got ulterior motives, and those actually don't feel like ulterior motives that you usually have. And so you, you think, oh, I feel a bit misrecognized. 
So how do you know if it's transference? It's you're not always sure. That's the truth of it. Because if if you're feeling something for the first time, it may be that it belongs to the other person's unconscious. But it may be that new stuff is coming up for you for the first time. That's why it's great fun to be a therapist, because you keep changing, developing, exploring, coming to know yourself as well. It's a it's a mutual discovery process. And, you know, that's why you stay so alive, awake, alert, and attuned. <clears throat> but Freud initially, <clears throat> excuse me, found uh, transference quite frustrating. And I'm, I must say, it is a bit, you sometimes feel really helpless when you watch someone clinging to something that's familiar, even though it's absolutely self-defeating, but you see them doing it again and again and again. Um, Nancy McWilliams says, uh, I love her writing. She's a really brilliant person to read if this is an area you want to go further with. Um, and her books are, are very reasonably priced, very accessible. Um, she says, it's so weird. It's almost like they're talking past you. You go, oh, I thought, oh, well, you, oh, you're talking to me. You think I feel that? Oh, you know, you really feel that the, the communication is addressed to someone else. <clears throat> so how, how do you know it's transference? Well, you feel sort of strangely frustrated, disconcerted, misrecognized, stuck in a lose-lose situation. You feel like there's nothing you can do that's going to be useful. Or you feel more adored than your actions warrant. You know, you feel like you've been a bit mediocre recently and they're really praising you to the skies and saying you're the best therapist in the world. You know, those can be transferential things. If someone is idealizing you, it's usually because there's ambivalence there. And the idealization is a reaction formation to make you focus on the positive aspect so that the negative features of what they're feeling are sort of out of the picture slightly or underground. So idealization always makes me scared. I always think, ah, I'm up on a pedestal. It's going to be a long way to fall because I usually am aware of my limitations as well as my strengths, hopefully. Um, but McWilliams says that it's only in a relationship characterized by transference that significant healing can arise. So whereas a CBT therapist thinks that it's the techniques and the homework that work and the therapist is virtually interchangeable, psychoanalysis thinks that the, the relationship to the therapist is crucial and that the therapist is not in the least bit interchangeable. It's not to say you couldn't get different things from different therapists. Guntrip has famously written about his analysis with uh, Fairburn, and then the second analysis with Winnicott. And my word, he got fabulously different things out of both of those analyses. But it, you know, it, the, the relationship matters a lot. Freud says you can't destroy anyone in absence or, or via an effigy. If you want to dismantle something, it's got to be recreated in the room, in a sense, so that you can then move on from that position. And so in a weird way, to dismantle the imago or to dismantle the power that this figure from the past has over you, the therapist has to allow the atmosphere of childhood to reemerge in the therapy room. And what that means is that usually the analyst is turned into the parent in some way or that relationships re-evoked in some way, that there are things projected onto the therapist um, that permit the patient to, to rediscover long forgotten or repressed feelings that were inexpressible in childhood. So they may say, um, turn the analyst into the feared father figure, 
and then really enjoy dissing the analyst because they can do it now and they're not going to get hurt or abandoned. And so they can move past that terror of challenging authority. And part of what the analyst has to do is is cope with being dissed or abused or someone being absolutely furious at you because you want them to say, to experience something new. For most of us, if we had absolutely dissed or abused or, you know, been furious at a father figure, there would have been repercussions. But in analysis, you get to do it, and the only repercussion is you have to talk about it. <laughs> okay? It's going to be analyzed. It's going to be discussed. But you don't get thumped. Your pay doesn't get cut. You don't get abandoned. You know, you just have to talk. And so... That's how change can occur, because you actually feel what it's like to challenge an authority figure and for there not to be repercussions. I would, you know, joyously be taking potato chips into the therapeutic room and crunching loudly, right? You know, yay, look at this. The therapist doesn't even notice that, you know, I'm doing something significant. And for me, it's like revolutionary. Okay, so analysis is not just about insight. It's about recreating things and new contingencies arising. And that is the freshness and newness of it that makes you feel that you're getting your life given back to you. And it is quite a remarkable thing once it starts to happen. So it's not just cognitive restructuring. It's about reliving, re-evoking. It's not just about self-report. It's about observation. It's not just an insight intellectual therapy. It's about acting differently in the moment with different contingencies occurring. So I don't get told off for crunching my potato chips. I get to crunch potato chips with impunity. Different contingencies occurring. Now, countertransference. Freud knew it existed. He talked about it. He certainly believed that there was unconscious to unconscious communication, spooky as that sounds. You know, in other words, you can be, say, feeling something unconsciously in the room. I pick up on that unconsciously. Both of the, our unconsciouses are in communication with each other, and consciously we've got no idea that that's happening. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know if you've uh, read any of Philip Pullman, yeah, the trilogy, The Dark Materials, His Dark Materials. The first one is called Northern Lights. It's this, I'm not going to spoil it for you, I promise. It's a sort of sci-fi book or trilogy, and the premise is that these different possible worlds have come into existence. So the disciplinary boundaries are really different. Like instead of having philosophy, you have experimental theology. Okay, it's a different world altogether. And what's fascinating about it is that people's souls in one of the worlds are external to themselves. And it's a very Jungian conception in that one's soul is the opposite gender to oneself. So, and they're, they're mobile and change until you hit puberty. They can take all sorts of different forms. And so you get these really fantastic encounters where the two people are facing each other going, hello, lovely to see you. And the two demons or external souls are going, or, or it's like, oh, hi. And the two demons are going, oh, love you, you know, rapture, abandon, sexual attraction, you know. So it's, it's like the way that, um, you know, we often don't really know fully what's unconsciously happening between us and another person. And what we are consciously aware of is usually only part of the story. Unfortunately, it, that first book got made into a, a pretty average sort of film, despite having 
um, Daniel Craig as um, one of the major characters and Nicole Kidman as one of the major characters and having some fantastic child actors, um, it didn't really happen. And so the, the second two books didn't get made into a film, but it's called The Golden Compass if you want to watch it. But I love that notion of the external souls as being the unconscious joining in without fitting in, basically, and about unconscious to unconscious communication. So... So what the therapist has to do is be able to recognize countertransference. It was actually a woman called Paula Hyman who, who used that word in 1950, countertransference, for feelings within the therapist that arise as a result of being scripted by the client. And you have to recognize its alien quality. And so to know that it's got an alien quality, you have to be pretty damned familiar with your own unconscious. In other words, it's pretty crucial that you've been analyzed yourself and that you know roughly the full scope of your own unconscious material so that you can go, whoa, I have not felt this before. It's a possibility that this is something coming from the unconscious of my patient. And I have to take it as a message from that person as to how they're feeling. Well, they want me to know what it feels like to be put in this situation. It's called communicating by impact. They're making me Feel it. You want to know what it was like to be abandoned by, by my father as a child? Here's how it feels, because I will abandon you now, or I will criticize you now. Okay, so you feel stuck, or you feel that you're placed in an impossible situation. You need to be able to comment on those patterns, but not in a blaming or judging way. So you have to raise it very tentatively for all sorts of reasons. You don't want the person to freak out because you're confronting them with unconscious material of their own. But also, um, you could be wrong. <laughs> it might not be their unconscious. It might be yours, but you just haven't encountered it before. So that's a real challenge. Okay, so quick summary. Unconscious, transference involves unconscious repetition of past feelings, emotions, or ways of relating in the present. They usually stem from quite specific features of a person's past. But they're being reproduced in a way that makes them inappropriate in some way to the present context. And the feelings and emotions are usually being addressed to the person of the analyst, but they can also be attacking the frame. They can be attacking the therapeutic frame. And you've got to be alert to that as well. They're templates. This is a really nice way of making them seem less spooky. They're just templates. They're just useful little rules of thumbs for ways of doing things. But you've never thought about them. You've never gone, I'm going to do this when I'm rejected. It just happens. And they're just a little bit stereotypic because they're outside of awareness. They're unconscious. They're not in language. You don't know they're doing them. So those things are much less able to be modified. If I've got a prejudice towards someone... You know, it's hard for me to modify that unless I can recognize that I'm a prejudiced person, that, you know, I have difficulties with red-haired people because my dad had red hair and he had a bad temper. Okay, I've got to be able to recognize that. If I'm interviewing someone for a job, they walk in, they've got red hair, and I go, oh, I don't think so. Do you know, <laughs> it's like you've got to go, whoops, whoops, bit of prejudice here, Doris. Okay, um, but you've also got to work out that there are things that determine your erotic patterns. And for for lots of us, it's just that faint whiff of rejection. It's like, oh, they're really cute, you know, because they're not interested in me. Great, 
I'll be really interested in them. You know, it's a very, very common one. I call that the cat erotic pattern. You know, oh, that person doesn't like me. I'll sit on their lap. Do you know? Okay, that's the cat sort of approach. But we like that. Oh, this person's really keen on me. Oh, I'm not interested in them. But that person doesn't really like me. I'm going to follow them, you know, and see if I can win them over. Okay. So transference can be a defense. It can get you so concerned with loving or hating the analyst, you don't have to think about the past. Transference love can be a way of deflecting awareness from the fact you're actually feeling really brassed off with this analyst. So if someone's flattering you and it just doesn't ring true, you have to be aware that they might actually be feeling a bit critical of you right now, but they're very afraid to be critical because in the past that cost them big time. So they're trying desperately not to be aware of their own critical feelings. And so there's something excessive about their idealization or their flattery. And a good analyst will say, you're just being so positive about me. I can't help but wondering, you know, if there's some ways in which I'm perhaps not living up to that idea. Very gently. You know, that's a very blunt way I just said, but you, know, you would not move quite so quickly. Transference hate. Someone could really be trying to get you to provoke and abandon them um, because you're the first person they've been able to feel connected to. And this is so scary for them. They'd actually feel a lot more comfortable if the world was the way it always is, which is that they get rejected. So they will move heaven and earth to try and get you to reject them, to give up on them in some way. So you have to wear that and not abandon them. Cope with having someone spit in your face for a year and a half, James Gross style. I mean, that's pretty amazing, I think. So the significance of transference from a psychoanalytic point of view is that it entails the possibility of change. And so even though much of psychoanalytic theory seems terribly pessimistic about our tendencies to repeat, to fool ourselves, to ignore the things that matter, to be blind to a good third of our impulses, this, I think, is the most optimistic aspect of psychoanalysis, and it's one of the things that I think gives it a radical, transformative potential, not just at the level of the individual, but at the level of a culture as well. That was Lecture 12 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose McKenzie-Peterson. The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. 